Uh, the first Bible reading is from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 12 to 16, and you can find this on page 427 in the Bibles. From verse 12. Wealth and honour come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. The second Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 16, verse 1 to 14, and you can find this on page 1048. From verse 1, Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, Who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good to be at church with you. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to, 
to see you at church this morning. You're joining us, if it's your first time or you're back after a couple of weeks, and if so, welcome back. Um, you're joining us as we do a finish the, our series. We've been spending the last uh, weeks thinking about uh, our wealth and our possessions. We've been trying to reflect on how God wants us to use them. It's been five weeks, so we're in the last week of the series. And if you were here last week, or if you just want to know where we're up to, we're spending last week and this week actually thinking about the idea of generosity. We see that the Bible calls God's people to be generous with their, their wealth and their possessions, to be deliberate about, I guess, living simple lives so we have more to give away. And as a result, we're asking ourselves a question, what should we be generous towards? Last week we said um, we should be generous to the poor. Like that's one of the hallmarks of God's people. They give to help those who are financially um, uh, struggling, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the fatherless. These were the four categories in the Old Testament. They do carry through into the life of God's people. Now, um, this, this morning, as we finish, I was just reflecting, we live in a world where things are often ending, and, and as a parent, you're always teaching your child this, you know, the, the raspberry punnet must end at some point, you know. Uh, the, uh, the pancake mix comes to an end. The party has to end. Um, the, uh, the holiday has to end. The dumplings have to end. There's just these little moments of endings, right? And then you come to the more serious things. The holiday with your grandmother has to end. And life ends, whether it's as simple as a guinea pig or more serious as the, the parent who's grown up with you. I mean, we are always grappling with endings in our life. So the question is, how do we think about our wealth and our possessions when we live in a world where everything ultimately comes to an end, runs out, when there is a, there's a finality to everything we have? How do we deal with our generosity, our wealth, our possessions in light of this? And to answer that, we're going to look at the Bible again. We've got a passage from the Old Testament. Let's start with that New Testament parable that Jesus tells of the shrewd or dishonest manager uh, in light of these things that don't last, Jesus tells a story about an, uh, a manager who's, who's kind of business owner, um, has indicated he's going to sack him, and, and he's preparing for the reality that he's lose his job, he'll lose his kind of welfare, his, his uh, livelihood, and so he goes to all of the clients, all of the providers, and he tells them to slash the bill, right? You know, what they owe, what they owe the business, in other words. And he does this, Jesus says, with a very deliberate purpose because he realises that he might, he might lose his job and so he wants to prepare himself for life after this, this thing. Now, it's a bit strange. We're not really sure why does the owner of the business commend him in a sense and why does Jesus seem to commend him. Um, most commentators seem to think that what he's doing is he's cutting off his take of, of the bill. You know, he might have got 30%, for example, from the provider and he's saying... I'm going to write off my 30%. So you're going, to, you're going to basically pay cost price for the item. There's no, he, he gets no benefit, in other words, from all of these items. The, the business gets what they originally wanted, but he loses all of his benefit. And so he's willing to trade off that immediate benefit for some kind of longer-term gain. And Jesus sums up the story. Parables are not directly analogous. Not every part of the story is something to be analysed, but Jesus summarises the main message of the story like this in verse 9. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed 
into eternal dwellings. And this is Jesus' main point, actually. He tells lots of stories in the Bible about actually things coming to an end, about the, the, the finality of this life. And he often uses economic or kind of market-based analogies to, to help us understand them. Again, he does it here, and he says, basically, this is the point, use the temporal things, the, the temporary things of this life to invest in the eternal things. Use the things that might be passing away, which have a use-by date, so to speak, to invest in the things that don't have a use-by date, to invest in the eternal things. And this principle is at play when we think about our wealth and our material possessions as we think about how to be generous. In fact, I think this is probably the main insight that the Bible gives us. We are to use the things that we have of this life, which are passing away, to prepare us and others for eternity. We're to have that kind of mindset. We're meant to live with that direction. The Apostle Paul takes this now, and then he applies it to us. Because there's a question. We live in a world where everything is coming to an end. So what is the eternal things that we should be investing in if everything's coming to an end? Well, the Bible's very clear. Everything ends except God and his word. So in the Old Testament, you have many verses. Here's a great example, Isaiah 40, where he says, Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Nothing endures forever but God and his message in the, in the eyes of the writers of the Bible. This is the only thing that keeps going. God's message to the world is the only thing that will endure forever, apart from God, of course, himself, who is eternal. And so that is the eternal thing. You're trying to work out what are the eternal things I should be investing in. There is only one thing right now in your life that has a, 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 a lifespan of eternity apart from God himself, and that is his word. That is his message. The central message he's bringing to the world. It starts in the Old Testament. It's revealed through the wisdom literature and through the prophets, Jesus brings it to its clearest form in the New Testament, and then the apostles take it and apply it to the church. And the message, that message of God is the only thing that endures. And so in a sense, that is the thing that we're called to invest in, right? Now Paul, picking that up, then applies it to the church. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy. His letter to Timothy, he says, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. In other words, he says, where do you find that word? You find it in the church, in the local church. It's the church's job to uphold this everlasting word of God. It's the local church, the, the, the household of God, this, this gathering of God's people, which is where the word of God is found, this eternal thing. It's the pillar. It's the foundation of truth. Everything else passes away, but this thing which the church upholds is eternal, and it's found in the church. And so Paul then goes on in another one of his letters. He says, to him be glory, that is to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Now, this is, this is a really interesting verse of Paul's in Ephesians because he's saying, Jesus, of course, brings glory to God. But he says the church brings glory to God. And, and the church brings a glory that is eternal. 
to God. And it does this because it holds the eternal word of God. The only reason it can bring a glory to God that goes on into eternity is because it's upholding this one thing that is eternal, the message of God, the word of God, the gospel, the good news that God wants people to know about him and what he's doing. And so Paul, in his writings, has a priority that he gives to the local church. Here he is in Galatians 6. He says, let us do good to all people. And this ties into what we were talking about last week in terms of generosity that's, that's offered to the poor, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See, Paul says, in our generosity, we're to, we're to serve the poor, the orphan, the widow, the fatherless, but we're to show a special priority to the mission and ministry of God's people, the church. And that's not because Paul has a bias towards Christians per se, but because of all that I'm saying. Because the church is the one place where you find the eternal word of God. The one place where you find something that will stretch into eternity, which has dramatic and eternal ramifications. So Paul says, this group of people, is worthy of a special attention, not because we are special in and of ourselves, but because at the heart of the gathering of God's people is this message. And it's true, isn't it? You go to your soccer club, you go off to your, um, your mother's group, all of these great little gatherings, right? But they don't, they don't have anything eternal. They exist for a moment, they end, whether it's just because the season ended, um, figuratively or literally, or... It's because, you know, people, people end. But the word of God is gathered not around even the individual relationships which come and go, but this message, this eternal message of God, which has been tested through generation upon generation and stood the test of time. God's promises are ongoing. And so if we want to think about our generosity and how we use our wealth as we come to the end of this series, here is where I want to finish wise generosity is directed to the mission of the local church. If the church is this important, if it carries this unique, everlasting task, if it is truly the thing through which God brings glory to himself forever and ever, then the mission of the church is worthy of the generosity of God's people. In fact, it should be the priority of our generosity. As much as we're called to serve the poor, our wise generosity must be directed to the mission of the local church. Now, I'm not saying St. Stephen's, although St. Stephen's is an expression of the local church, but if your church is, if you're visiting us today, but your church is in Lane Cove or in Bangkok, then that is the church that God is calling you to be generous towards because he is using that gathering as much as he is using this gathering to do his work. As long as the word of God is at the centre of that gathering, then that is a gathering worthy of your generosity, worthy of your giving, worthy of your wealth and your possessions. So what does it mean to give to the local church? Because that's always a question. The Bible actually gives us lots of principles about giving. Uh, I've, I've got five of them for us here. I'm not going to give you all the verses. Actually, if you're in a, if you're in a midweek uh, Bible study, what we call gap groups, you will work through a number of these um, a number of these principles in your group this week and you can discuss them all but let me quickly go through them first of all 
we are to give in proportion. So the person who earns a million dollars gives a different amount to the person who earns a hundred dollars. Right? That's just, that's just God, God doesn't expect both to give the same amount. That's comforting, perhaps, for the person who earns a hundred dollars, but it's also challenging for the person who earns a million dollars, because if you earn a lot of money, you can actually give in proportion quite a little amount and look generous. But generosity is measured in proportion. Uh, what is the proportion? It's hard to say, but the, I think the starting point would at least be 10%. 10% of your wealth and possessions should be given to the ministry of the church. As we talked about last week, in the Old Testament, which is where we generally think of that 10% number coming from, the, the tithing number is more like 23%. But about 10% of that is directly, it appears, given to the ministry of the church, of the temple, and Jesus seems to carry that through in Matthew. So I think if you're looking for a starting point, start with 10%. I think 10% is a good way to give in proportion. Secondly, give sacrificially. Paul he acknowledges the Macedonians because they give beyond their, their means, in a sense. He thinks this is extraordinary. So as much as we're told to give in proportion, we should never allow ourselves to not give sacrificially. We talk about, people say, oh, it's all about your heart, not how much you give. Paul says your heart should be sacrificial, and that will impact what you give. You should give regularly. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, the last chapter of that, he, does it, he spends about five or six verses talking about a collection that they're arranging at the time. And we get lots of great principles out. One of them is that he calls the Corinthians to collect, to make a collection at the start, regularly, every week, a bit like we do offertory. Now, we don't pass a, um, a bucket around at church anymore. Most people give online. But there should, there should be a, a habit in God's people of giving regularly. This reminds us of a regular basis of God's generosity to us and what we have received and gives us an opportunity to practice generosity regularly. Fourthly, we're to entrust it to good leaders. I think we have a tendency now to think, oh, it's my money, so I will direct it the way I want to. But interestingly, the Bible seems to encourage us to give it to the leadership of God's church, wherever that is, and entrust them to make good decisions. So actually, in, in St. Stephen's, the Anglican system, the way this works is we have a parish council and wardens who are elected by the congregation every year, and they're responsible for working out where the money goes, what ministries we invest in. They work uh, with myself and the rest of the ministry team so that you know, they're not going in one direction, we're going the other. But we have decided who are the godly people here. They love the Lord Jesus, they're wise, and we entrust to them the responsibility of, of managing our finances. But equally, those leaders must manage it well, Paul encourages us. And so we believe in accountability at our church. Uh, every year, at the start of the year when we have our AGM, all of our accounts are there. If you, if you want, you can go and check them out. You can take a copy home. If you want to do that now, you still can. You can just contact me and I will send you the, the latest accounts that we have. Uh, the parish council views the accounts, the people who make payments, we have to always authorise them. There's a whole heap of accountability because leaders are to be accountable about what is to be given. It is to be used carefully and well. So this is how I think we should think about giving, and I think there's a real priority to giving to the local church. Now, I was talking to someone the other day, and they, they said they loved, they've been loving this series, and they said, I love this series because you have not asked us to give any money to the local church. 
I said, oh, there's one more week to go in the series. <laughs> and uh, I said, why? You love the idea of being generous. You love that I'm telling us that we should give our money away. So why do you not like the idea that I would get up and say you should give it to your local church? I said, oh, it just feels like just filling the coffers. Now, that's a phrase that comes from, like, you know, church history when the medieval Roman Catholic church uh, notoriously took, you know, well, uh, took money from the poor to, to make the clergy rich. You know, it has all these connotations of that. Of course, that is not what we're talking about. I want to say, just structurally speaking, for example, if our giving was to increase at St. Stephen's, my stipend would not increase at all. We could increase our giving by 200% next week. Mine would stay exactly the same. Same with the other staff. Because it's set. It's just set by the diocese based on average weekly earnings. Uh, the assistant ministers here, they, they get a housing allowance, which is set, determined by the kind of property market of the time. It's, it's uh, assessed every year. Uh, and, and so that, that may go up, but it's based on the market, not on the giving. So there is, there is no way that giving directly impacts me assured. Um, you just have to work out as a church, can you afford your minister or not? The diocese sets a number. This is what it looks like to employ someone, to bring someone on as a minister. But I want to say there are real opportunities for increased giving. Because, and this is what I was, I was driving home in this conversation, the person I was talking about, when, when you give to your local church, you're not filling the coffers, you're giving to people. And you're giving so that people will hear the gospel and so that eternal word would take hold and root in people's lives and change and transform them. He, if, if, our giving, if our giving doubled, and that, that shouldn't be inconceivable because it, the data says most churches' giving is about 2 to 3%. Now, the Bible says 10%. Most people at churches, there are, of course, uh, exceptions, plenty of exceptions, but the general giving rate is 2 to 3%. If we doubled, that means we got to 6%, well short of the 10%, right? Even if our giving doubled, we'd be able to do so much with, that, with, with those resources. For example, we might bring a music minister on, uh, someone who works with the team, who, who serves and trains them, who grows them, who encourages them, who helps us as a church, we might bring on a full-time administrator. Most of our pastoral staff spend a lot of time in administration. Imagine the opportunities that open up for them with people and with word ministry if they're doing less administration. Uh, we would be able to double or triple our mission giving. Our mission giving is a percentage of our overall giving. So if our giving increases, our mission giving automatically increases. Uh, we, we would be able to support churches in Western Sydney. Last year, we gave $70,000 to the new churches, in, new churches for new communities um, uh, group in the diocese who are building churches in Western Sydney, where there is a huge influx of people. There is nowhere near enough churches. We have increased giving. We get the opportunity to be generous to parts of Sydney, which desperately need it. We would be able to do evangelistic... If someone comes to one of our courses, we just get to give them everything, from the meal to the content, we just, we just, to, to the experience. We just get to be lavishly generous. We get to hire a part-time youth minister. 
to boost an area of our ministry which has suffered terribly as a result of the COVID pandemic. I'm just, I just picked six. I'm not saying that if you did this, this is just, I'm just picking six, right? I just want you to notice as well with all of these, these are people. These are people-based things. They impact people. They're not things, they're not things which just, just allow a backroom bureaucracy to occur. They flow onto people and they bring that eternal word to bear on people, all of them. Whether it's because we believe that people are more than just um, brains on a stick but embodied and are en- enabled and their hearts are set on fire by the, by the joy of singing together or whether it's a reality that we want to be multi-generational and we want young people to know the gospel. This is all people-based. And so what Paul is talking about when he encourages giving is saying, give because this and other things like this are what benefit. This is what benefits. Now the reality is it's 2 to 3%, right? We struggle to give. Why is that? Why, why is it that despite there's just being these clear mandates in Scripture, God's people struggle to give? Well, Jesus gives us a couple of, he gives us a couple of clues in the parable, actually. The first is, he says, be careful about being dishonest about your wealth. He says in verse 10, whoever's dishonest with a little will be dishonest with much. What does he mean? I think it could be like, you know, bribery or extortion or those kind of financial crimes that we think of when we think about dishonesty. But I think he's talking about a more, a, a deeper orientation to our wealth. In that first reading from the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 29, it's, it's David who's praying. It's a bit out of context for you, I apologise. It's David praying to God. He's about to build the temple, or he thinks he's about to. In the end, it's Solomon who does. And Israel has sent in so much of their wealth from the various corners of the, of the kingdom. There's so much wealth before him. But David prays something which identifies some of the, some of the, some of the lies that we sometimes believe. We think, for example, that we have we have created our wealth. But David reminds us of the central truth we started this series with, that actually every good thing has come to us from God. God has given it to us. And David says, despite looking out at this amazing kingdom that he now rules, no, this all comes from you. We look at our wealth and we think, ah, now I'm comfortable, now I'm safe. David looks out at all of his wealth and he realizes, no, that the real strength and power comes from God instead. And, you know, we, we look at the things that glitter in our life, we think that's what gives us glory and worth and value, but David looks at his wealth as glorious as it is, far more glorious than you or I will ever accumulate. And he knows that the one who's truly glorious is God still. Do not be dishonest about your wealth. This prayer of David is the starting point for real generosity. But you notice that Jesus also says we can, we can fall into serving the wrong master, that famous verse, verse 13, no one can serve two masters. You can serve the wrong master. You know, I was watching Grand Designs last week. I love that show because people just make dumb decisions all the time and then we get to go along for the ride. This guy decided to build his house in the middle of England, worst place possible. He spent 1.7 million pounds building this house. Why did he do this? Because he hoped his kids would move in back, back in with him after they finished it. He lost so much money. We use our money 
to serve the wrong things, right? We laugh at that. We think, oh, gosh, that's a lot of money just to get kids to move back in. But so many of us, we're driven by a materialistic mindset that if we have a lot of money, this thing will become meaningful. If we throw a lot of money at it, it will become meaningful. And family is a classic example. We throw a lot of money at great holidays, at beautiful homes, because we think that will make this one of the meaningful experiences in my life, but we're serving the wrong master. We're serving the wrong master. And the sad thing is, even as functional as your family is, one person at that table will be at the funeral of every other person. It doesn't matter how much you invest in it. In the end, that thing will come to a conclusion. Because we live in a world where everything ends. Everything ends. And Jesus says... Make sure you use those temporary things to invest in what is eternal. Do not waste it on the things that will perish. Do not waste it on the things that will end. Invest in what is eternal. You will be making a good decision. So how do we, how do we recover generosity? How do we not be captured by the, the, the lies that sneak in, sneak in and... and, and kind of undermine our, our desire to be generous. Well, in the end, as it has always been and always is, it is that eternal Word of God that is the key. That's why the church is to uphold it, because that's what changes people, this gospel. And you see the gospel again because it, it's there. It's even there in that key verse. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed in to eternal dwellings. How do you offset those two lies with two great truths of the gospel? First of all, you will be welcomed in. The great promise of the Christian gospel is this. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, it does not matter. It does not matter what mistakes it made. It does not matter if up until now you have grappled with your wealth and sought to find your meaning through it. The great news is that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, he's paid the price for all that. He's dealt with every single one of those failings on the cross. He's borne the punishment. He's borne the judgment. He's borne the wrath. So that when you meet the Father on that last day, you will be welcomed in. Like the son in the prodigal story, you can come back to him. His arms are ready for you. Tim Keller, New York pastor, passed away about a week ago. I really love his son posted, his son relayed part of his last prayer, one of his final prayers. And he's a guy who, you know, has a beautiful family, successful ministry. He's kind of adored and loved by hundreds of thousands, millions of people, right? But here's his prayer. Michael Keller quotes him. He says, I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful the time God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. There's a man who knows, as he prays that prayer, that he'll be welcomed home. That the arms of his heavenly Father, stretched out for him, are far greater than any blessing he's received on this earth. 
And you know, this is not a tragic story. It's not like Romeo and Juliet, the great love crushed in the end by death itself, because of course the gospel is a gospel of a welcome into eternal dwellings. What God is giving you will not perish, spoil, or attain, because Jesus Christ has established that. When he rose from the dead three days later, he showed us that every promise of God will come true. And that the promises of God are far better than the things this earth promises. That when you meet him on that last day and he welcomes you home, there is no end to that. There is no end to that joy. There is no end to that welcome. There is no end to that love. There is no end to that comfort or that security that being with your God brings you. And it is yours if you're willing to accept it. And I tell you, when you believe the gospel, you will not think twice about casting off the things that are of this world. When you believe it truly, deeply, and you will see the value, the immense value of every cent, every dollar, every, every piece of material possession you use for the sake of that gospel. Because as you invest it in someone else, you invest it in something that is deeply, wonderfully, eternally significant. You're pouring it. You're pouring the word of God into their hearts that they might know the God of eternity and they might be welcomed home too. As we finish, the best thing that we can do is to meditate on God's promises offered to us in his word. So as we do that, we've got, got a, a video which we're going to show you and in it are just a glimpse, some of the promises that God gives us of what it will be like on that day to be welcomed into the arms of God.